Hi, and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. My name is Chelsea Slotten, and I'll be your host for today's episode. On this episode, we'll be talking about the emerging field of archaeoecology, what it is, and why it's important. We're joined by the creators of this new subfield, Dr. Jennifer Dunn and Dr. Stephanie Crabtree from the Santa Fe Institute. Filling out the panel today are Emily Long and Kirsten Lopez. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. Thanks for having us. We're thrilled to have you. Yeah, super excited um, to talk about this. Just read the article that you recently published. Um, Very excited to get into the weeds. But before we get there, our uh, listeners won't necessarily have the benefit of having read um, the article or seen the bios that um, we were provided with. So Jennifer, Stephanie, just one of you want to jump in and give just like a quick overview of who you are and then pass off to the next person? Sure. Um, so I am Stephanie Crabtree. I am an archaeologist by training. Um, I have a PhD in archaeology from Washington State University, and I have another PhD from France, from the Université de Franche-Comté. And I am interested in the ways that we can understand the ecology of the past from the archaeological record. I've worked kind of worldwide, and so, you know, this project and the collaboration with Dr. Jennifer Dunn were kind of a natural with the kinds of interests that I have. Great. Um, also overachiever, two PhDs. I mean, you know, <laughs> I once heard that PhDs do not go to the smartest people, but the most stubborn. So it just tells you that I'm twice as stubborn as the average archaeological woman. <laughs> Excellent. What about you, Jennifer? Great. Uh, I'm Jennifer Dunn, and I am a professor at the Santa Fe Institute. Uh, I am also a vice president for science at SFI. And uh, I have a variety of kinds of training in my past. Studied philosophy as an undergrad. Nice. Conser- yeah, conservation biology and ecology at, at the master's level, but my PhD is in something called energy and resources <laughs> at okay, UC Berkeley. So you jumped around a bit. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but my expertise, my research expertise is in ecology. And in particular, although I, I spent a decade doing a, field work on plant community ecology and impacts of climate change in subalpine meadow ecosystems. Uh, I then for my postdoc and beyond turned to ecological network research. So food webs and other kinds of networks like that, how mm-hmm. species interact with each other. And so that's where my expertise lies. And um, Stephanie and I kind of ended up Converging particularly through the use of ecological networks to understand uh, the human role in ecosystems and both how humans impact ecosystems in the past and how ecosystems shape human culture. That's yeah, really I was, cool. Um, I was particularly interested in the, the point you made in your article about how the environments that people are in shape people um, themselves. So I definitely want to talk about that in a bit later, because before we get into the weeds, um, can you explain kind of what what archaeoecology is? Why are you promoting it as a, as a new subfield? Where is its value? Um, why should we all be doing it? 
Yeah, so um, I'm going to start with this one, if that's okay. So yeah. as an archaeologist, having worked kind of everywhere, I started working in France and then did CRM in kind of the Colorado-Wyoming area. One of the things that we realize early on is, you know, you can't understand the culture of the past unless you understand the surrounding, what we as archaeologists term, environment. And one of the things that archaeologists are really good at is cataloging the things that we find from middens, from just general excavations of house floors. We say, look, it's a rabbit bone or a deer bone, or here are the bits of pollen that we find. But by cataloging all these things, we're also kind of missing information. And one of the bits of information that we're missing is how these bits of the environment from the past coexisted together. A lot of the time as archaeologists, we are focused naturally on the people and their culture. But as you point out um, that we say in the article, people were also shaped by the ecosystems in which they were living. And so really the impetus for understanding for this work, for writing this work, is looking at the fact that the archaeological record has this wonderful preservation of past ecosystems that people brought back to where they lived that incidentally came in via wind or water, or however, whatever processes um, brought them together. And that this can be a partner with studying modern ecosystems as well as paleo ecosystems. So paleoecology has been around for a long time. Modern ecology has been around for a long time. But we have this depth of information from when people were living in ecosystems and bringing things back together that we can start to really leverage in our studies. And by understanding the ecology of the past, we can understand the ways that people lived within these, this ecology. What kinds of things did they have at their fingertips? How did they change the ecosystems around them? And mm -hmm. so that, I think, is the impetus for why I really saw this as needed to be defined. People have been doing this in a grassroots manner for a mm -hmm. long time, but it doesn't necessarily have a term and it matters what we call things. And it matters to be able to know that there are these different realms of being able to study the past. And in this way, I think that archaeology partners very well with ecology and archaeologists and ecologists have been working together for a long time. But here we can kind of leverage the archaeological data and leverage the modeling tools from ecology and what we know about modern ecology and paleoecology and get this long-term understanding of the past. So you're thinking of it as like an umbrella term? Um, I'm thinking of it as a term for understanding the ways that humans and ecosystems interacted in the past. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of it as a way to disentangle from environment. So it turns out ecosystems and environments are different. And a lot of the time as archaeologists, we um, use those words interchangeably. I use them interchangeably a lot. Mm -hmm. And so by using, by having this term, having this field defined, it provides opportunities for using modeling approaches and for understanding full interconnected ecosystems in the past in a way that maybe was difficult to do previously. Yeah, so, I mean, you are envisioning this, um, and I, I did get this a bit from the, the article, which um, we'll link to um, in, the, in the show notes, but we, we do already have kind of paleoecology and environmental ecology, um, and you, you know, mentioned um, Jennifer, paleoecology, 
Um, and this kind of seems like it's trying to like bring all of that together. Yes, that I fair? do think I do think that that's that's the case that paleoecology has done quite a lot for understanding the depth of ecosystems. And while paleoecology does study the human place in ecosystems a little bit into the Holocene and before that, that really the time is right for understanding the human place. And I think that that is something that we really want to push, that Jennifer and I want to push with this study, is that um, humans have done very interesting things within environments and with ecosystems for as long as we have been impacting them for over 200,000 years. And so we really need to be able to study this in a comprehensive manner. And that's, that is what we are calling for with this term, with this subfield, and with these tools that we outline here. And it's something that Dr. Jennifer Dunn and myself do with our work already. And so it's coming together. And a lot of other people are also doing this work. So it's coming together, this grassroots kind of work is coming together under this umbrella Mm-hmm. that we think can be transformative for ecology, for archaeology, for the paleosciences, to really understand the human place in ecosystems and the depth of that. One of the things that this reminds me of, because um, you mentioned like this is something that people have been doing and are doing currently for a while, um, and this is kind of applying a term that brings this specific like for lack of a better word, um, what is it? The uh, Anthropocene, the, the ecology of the Anthropocene is one mm-hmm. one way that you could use that this, I guess maybe, um, is looking at, you know, how people have affected and do affect and are integrated into the surrounding ecology. And one of the, the examples that comes to mind are Um, some works that I've seen of fire ecology, especially here out West. And I've seen examples of similar studies um, in places like Australia, where it's known um, that indigenous practice included um, anthropogenic fire to modify the surrounding ecology to their benefit. Um, And then there's, there's more subtle ways, uh, of course, that humans interact with and help form the surrounding ecology and environment. Um, But this is one of the more um, intense or impactful, I think, uh, ways that people can kind of wrap their head around the concept. Does that sound right? And actually, Jennifer here, um, uh, Dr. Stephanie Crabtree has done some really interesting archaeoecological work in Australia around issues of fire. Stephanie, I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So um, after I finished my PhDs, um, I was a postdoc at um, Penn State, and I got to work among the Mardu Aboriginal foragers in the Western Desert of Australia. And the um, what we wanted to understand was essentially the human place in the ecosystem. And what is it that people do in the ecosystem that can make it uh, more robust, essentially. So um, I built food webs for understanding what people interacted with before they were removed to cattle stations and missions on the periphery of their homelands in 1964. And then what happened when people were brought back into the ecosystem in a more traditional way in the 1980s. 
So in that 20-year intervening time, there were extinctions of several small-bodied mammals. And so it seems like people may have been really important for the functioning of the ecosystem. So um, gathered a lot of data, did quite a lot of simulations, and looked at exactly how people were impacting the ecosystem, how that changed over time. What were the roles of people within this ecological community, and how did people lead to more robust ecosystems. Um, that paper was published in 2019, and it was just recently um, cited by the Australian government for their state of the environment and how they will be looking at um, essentially helping with these vulnerable desert ecosystems. And wow, so that's, that's incredible. Um, it's pretty cool. It's very important. And but I think that you know what's really important about this work is. Working with traditional elders, traditional ecological knowledge, and, you know, I'm just, I'm essentially just translating it and writing down the things that they've known because they've co-evolved in this ecosystem for 40,000 years. But this is an example of an archaeoecological work where you build from data that you find archaeologically or ethnographically, you work with traditional knowledge holders, you do simulations from an ecological uh, background, from, from ecology perspectives. And then you can understand, essentially, how does this modern ecosystem work? What is the human place? What have we done over the past, you know, many generations that have led to the ecosystem we see today? And how can we learn from the past to have a better future? Uh, just to, for our listeners, and I apologize if you guys have already, um, feel like you've you've gone beyond the topic, but just generally speaking for um, our listeners, what exactly is a food web? I'll take this one. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so Jennifer uh, Dunn here. Uh, so a food web, uh, in its simplest sense, is basically a list of species that co-occur in an ecosystem. But, you know, everything from microbes up to plants and insects and vertebrates and parasites. And, and then it's drawing links among all those species. So to create a network. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, a food web is a network of who eats whom in an ecosystem, in a particular community or ecosystem. Awesome. Thank you. And I can see how that term is ex extremely applicable in a lot of uh, archaeological contexts. I mean, you can't go, gosh, any, I can't think of any site where there wouldn't be some sort of interaction with one's ecosystem, with the animals, whether one is causing change directly, indirectly, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And that's why a, a, you know, an ecological network perspective or a food web perspective uh, can be a really useful framework for mm -hmm. doing archaeoecology. And it's how I first got involved. I was pulled into a project uh, uh, that was looking at the biocomplexity of the Sanak Archipelago, which is a little archipelago that's a part of the Aleutian Island chain. Ooh. And uh, I was asked to participate basically to see if we could actually use a food web framework to understand uh, how humans fit into uh, local food webs there over mm -hmm. the last several thousand years. And no one had really done this before um, in a comprehensive, highly resolved, very detailed way. And it took many years to, uh, for a lot of people to pull the data together uh, to really try to 
nail down, particularly for the marine systems, um, what species humans were feeding on. But uh, in the end, we were able to pull together a really awesome marine food web and intertidal food web that showed how humans were out of many hundreds of species, humans were feeding on about a quarter of the species in the system. And that was embedded within this full network, not just of who humans were feeding on, but also all the other feeding interactions among the species. And that enabled us to understand that, um, you know, we, we did a bunch of other things, which I won't go into, uh, but it allowed us to understand when humans came into that system after uh, deglaciation along with other species or shortly thereafter, they were able to actually kind of fit into the ecosystem. There weren't cascading extinctions when humans came into that system. So a little bit like the Mardu people story that uh, Stephanie Crabtree talked about, this was a case where humans didn't come into an ecosystem and completely wreck it. Um, <laughs> they, <laughs> they, were at, uh, they actually, you know, have kind of, uh, they fit in. And even though they're super generalist, uh, in terms of feeding on a lot of different species compared to other species in the food web and uh, uh, are very closely connected to all the species in the ecosystem. There's, there's not evidence that they were um, having a negative impact or leading to species extinctions. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we always hear the kind of doom and gloom stories about humans doing things that lead to habitat destruction or species extinctions. But in the past, we see all kinds of uh, relationships where humans have positive stabilizing effects on the ecosystem or where they're neutral uh, or, you know, in many cases where they do have negative impacts. Um, but looking at uh, the ecology and the ecological interactions really gives us a powerful quantitative framework for trying to understand not only you know, sort of that negative, positive, and neutral sort of scenario. But to to figure out sort of what drove the different ways that the ecosystem sort of and other species responded to humans being in the system. And I think that is such an important thing to touch on and to to really kind of bring out, uh, is suss out, is, is that humans arriving like there's been for I feel like so long this assumption that oh humans arrive on a landscape we're gonna have like all sorts of people or not people but all sorts of species like dying off like that's just what happens when people arrive like they just kill everything right and that's not the case and a lot of different indigenous groups have been saying that for you know a really long time at this point (laughs) Yes. Um, so it's nice to see that like really kind of showing up in um, in these studies um, and just demonstrating that, yeah, so this whole like giant extinction happening right now or like the assumption that that's just the way it is, isn't correct. Like there we can, there are ways that um, we can fit in to an ecosystem without totally destroying everything. Out of curiosity, so uh, Stephanie, I believe it, um, you mentioned earlier that it's been difficult in the past for um, the ability to um, have this a- as a field. And I'm curious, is it because of uh, modeling technology that we just didn't have that quite yet? Or is just that we have so many um, of these studies that were 
done individually. It's never really been combined before. I'm just kind of curious oh. about that. I'm actually going to break in here really rudely because it is a great question. Oh, gosh. I I'm super so want to talk about it. Um, <laughs> but we are out of time for our first segment. Um, so, Emily, absolutely love the question. Definitely think we need to, to get to it. Can't we do it just after the break? No. Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, I'm going to hit stop recording. See you after the break. (laughs) Hey, Chelsea and Kirsten, you know what would look really cool on a t-shirt or baby onesie? Ooh, our logo? Oh my gosh, yes. Man, if only we had something like that on TeePublic. Wait a minute, we do. Hey, what? Even Henry's excited. Yay! <laughs> That's right, yay! You can find us on tpublic.com and you can also find a link anywhere you can find us. Go get your swag now! We're adding new designs all the time. Hooray! Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. So far on today's episode, we have been talking with Jennifer and Stephanie about kind of the emerging field of archaeoecology, how it differs from other um, similar fields of, you know, paleoecology, paleoarchaeology, um, and just kind of the importance of respecting um, like indigenous elders and like learning from people who, who hold that knowledge. And right before the break, Emily had asked a really great question. Um, and I'm hoping that she can rephrase it for us here to kick off the second segment. All right, let's see what I can do. All right. So what I'm interested in, um, I mean, obviously this is all interesting, but I'm curious because you brought up saying that it has been difficult in the past um, to have archaeocology. And now that we have systems of modeling, you can move forward in some curious if in the past what were the the things that made it difficult to have this study before now well i think i'd actually like to rephrase it to why is it possible now oh that's excellent Um, yes because i think that uh there are several things that have converged to make this possible Mm -hmm. one of these is the fact that old dusty archaeological reports are starting to be digitized And so there are these centralized repositories like the Digital Archaeological Record or Neotoma, which does a lot more environmental data, um, and many others where you can go to to collect a lot of this data. A lot of what we are calling for um, for archaeoecological studies require a lot of data because you need to understand the human place in an ecosystem how that changes over time. And then you need to understand what that overarching ecosystem is. And so this requires data. And so it's not just archeological data, but it's also databases such as um, gathering data about, for example, bird species. You can go to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology where you can get all of this information about extant bird species and what they're like today. And then you can kind of extrapolate back to the past. And so all of this is being made possible by the fact that there is a groundswell of support in open science, in the ability for you to share your data with lots of other people, to be able to study things in a more 
in a better way. We can, I love it when people use my past work to build to something new and something greater. And so that is one of the things that's made it possible. The other um, thing that's made it possible is while archaeologists have been interested in the surrounding ecology for a long time, a lot of the time that has been focusing on just a few key species that people interact with. Um, you mentioned that you work in Oregon, which is where I was born, where I'm from. My family's still all there. And, you know, we may be interested in um, looking at salmon, for example, if you work on the Columbia River. But there are so many other uh, species that people interacted with. And then those species also interact with others. And so the modeling approaches have enabled us to be able to start looking at this work that Dr. Jennifer Dunn has been working on for a long time, work that I, Dr. Stephanie Crabtree, have been working on um, to understand kind of what people do in an ecosystem in a comprehensive modeling way. Computational um, power has gotten a lot better. Our computers, we can, we can actually run one of the simulation uh, platforms on our cell phones now, um, NetLogo. Uh, which is for doing agent-based modeling, which is something else that I do, just released a platform for your little pocket computer that you carry with you everywhere. And so that tells you a whole lot of how things have changed in the past 10 or 20 years. And so because of this, we're able to more precisely understand that we can bring in all of this data that's being collated from all of the archaeological reports from the last 125 years. We can bring in our understanding of ecosystems from all of those data sets from working with experts who work in these places, and then we can simulate these things together. And there's one final piece, which is I think that we realize that a big problems that we have today can only be tackled with interdisciplinary approaches. And so we need this interdisciplinarity. And so archaeoecology is interdisciplinary, even in the title, archaeology and ecology brought together to make something greater than the sum of its parts, essentially. And so all of these things together, I think, make this possible. Jennifer, do you want to add anything to this? Yeah, I'll add something from the kind of ecologist point of view. Uh, ecology, you know, has tended to focus on extant ecosystems and often has uh, in the past sort of thought about those extant ecosystems as somehow separate from humans. Uh, of course, <laughs> that's really changed and is changing where increasingly uh, ecologists are embracing sort of, I mean, a couple of things. They're embracing thinking about the human impact on ecosystems explicitly as a part of their studies. Uh, for example, my master's and PhD work was about impacts of climate change on montane ecosystems. So although humans weren't explicitly in the kind of data and modeling that I and my colleagues were doing, it was an implicit, you know, sort of, well, not just implicit, but an explicit forcing function in a sense, like human impacts uh, and trying to understand that. And uh, so, but there's also been a move to more explicitly incorporate humans into an ecological understanding of ecosystem structure and dynamics and stability. There's also been a big push uh, for looking in deep time. You know, there's there's a lot of people now who are very interested in doing paleoecology. That's been around for decades. 
as a kind of explicit thing looking back in geologic history. And there's also, I mean, another kind of piece of this is that there's an increasing interest in uh, the importance of traditional ecological knowledge uh, for ecology, for ecological understanding. And uh, there's all, even things like uh, the National Science Foundation has funded research on urban rural gradients from an ecological point of view. So where you you know, are basically trying to understand how ecosystems and ecological dynamics change going you know, from a city center. So what's the ecology of a city in the center of it, in the heart of it? But then if you keep pushing out beyond the boundaries of the city and out into more rural areas, you know, what is the ecology doing? What are the ecosystems doing and the species doing? So I think there's a bunch of different trends in ecological research itself um, that, you know, feed very obviously into this whole notion of archaeoecology. That's fascinating. And I mean, it is interesting. um, Yeah, just to think about that that human impact on the environment and, and vice versa. Um, because obviously like humans have been identified as a, as a keystone species or like an organism that helps define an entire ecosystem. And, you know, we're keystone species in a lot of places. It's not just like on one Island. Um, so how that, how that interplays with, with what's going on with humans, even if it's, that's as simple as like, a person deciding that they're going to plant a bee insect and bird friendly garden so that as you know, bees, insects and birds are flying around, they have somewhere to stop and rest and get some nourishment um, to like larger scale projects of like governments deciding to put in green belts or, you know, animal crossings over highways or whatever it is. And then obviously the impact that um, environments have on humans as well, just in terms of like what kind of clothing we wear. Um, is it cold? Is it hot? Um, you know, our, our nettles around. Um, I moved to Scotland. I was not previously from somewhere where nettles existed. In my first six months here, I just spent walking around getting pricked by nettles because I didn't know what they looked like and they hurt. <laughs> I had that experience for the first time I did survey up in a marshy area near Portland up here. Oh my God, I kept grabbing it. And I'm like, what is this? Ow, what's going on? Um, That was poor life choices though. (laughs) Right. And then you're like, oh, if I'm going to go in a field, I definitely need to be wearing trousers because if I'm not, all these little nettles are just going to attack me. You know that there are fancy spas out there where you can get nettle therapy because allegedly it's supposed to be good for you. So Whenever I've had to do survey through areas with nettles, I tell the people who are doing survey with me to think they're in a spa. Oh, that is... That's a good way to try to keep it in mind. Like, it's <laughs> one way to think about it. Yeah. I don't know that you want to keep that... I don't know you want to keep that in the podcast, but... <laughs> I love it. Maybe that's why the, that area had the invention of pants, you know? <laughs> Yeah, we see a sudden creation in the in the archaeological midden of textiles because people did not like walking through nettles. <laughs> well, this actually brings up a, you know, a, something that Stephanie and I and our collaborators are very interested in. You know, we've talked a lot about feeding interactions, but of course, in the past and in the current, there's many many different kinds of ways that humans interact with other species. 
Mm-hmm. So clothing, you know, different kinds of both plant and animal material, you know, have been used for clothing in, you know, the past and the present. And, you know, and there's many other types of interactions, uh, you know, medicine, companion, trade, cosmology, you know, tools. So, you know, while feeding is a really dominant relationship between humans and other species, including humans themselves, of course, get fed upon uh, by parasites and, you know, by macro predators in some cases. And, uh, but there are, there is this, you know, really rich diversity of types of interactions that we can actually bring network approaches to try to understand in a more quantitative way, both within systems and across systems and across time. Mm-hmm. And what are those trade-offs that you make when you're making these kinds of choices? So what if there are two species, one that you have domesticated and one that is a native species, and you have to clear one to be able to plant the other, but they both are very important. Maybe one is for food and one is for clothing. So if you clear it, you're not going to have it in the future. So mm-hmm. these, these archaeoecological approaches where we look at that ecosystem, how humans embed themselves in the ecosystem in these different ways can be really important for understanding the ways that um, these ecosystems change and the ways that people's choices change over time. And so in this way, you know, when, when you're doing a CRM project and you're excavating and you're in a midden and you're, you're looking at the changes in the fauna over time, if you modeled that, if you looked at, you know, are they getting smaller, you know, the different species, or are we getting different kinds of species? You could look at how those interact in the network and make some inferences about how that ecosystem changed and what the human response was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, um, I'm, I'm glad you, you guys brought that in because my, my thesis research for my master's focused on um, the use of plants for textiles specifically mm-hmm. um, of all kinds from basketry to clothing to, you know, uh, mats, housing and such, and sourcing those to where they were harvested from mm-hmm. versus, you know, where they're found at. And some of that was one of the challenges that I was having and one of the challenges of the project was I was doing this in a context of early Holocene Great Basin. So the pluvial lakes, right? So the environment is more or less vaguely the same, but more water, right? And so you have a lot of the same plants, different densities, slightly different location. And it was difficult to find the information that I needed for that it was it's kind of in that like it's not old enough to really fit into the paleoecological studies which were often like that you know late pleistocene and prior but it was not the same as today so trying to find the right data that modeled not food species was its own challenge and that's where i feel like getting into a larger food web can really help create the models for the larger ecosystem um, that isn't necessarily feeding, um, as was noted earlier. So that's 
something that's really neat to see as a potential for this, for those of us who study non-food um, species uh, interactions with culture. So that's, uh, I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mentioned on the break, having even just a new search term, you know, to, to look up, uh, to find who's doing similar work. Like it was yeah. so hard to discover because it's just, I had to really kind of open my brain and be like, what are some vaguely related, possibly connected like areas of study that could inform what I'm trying to do? Because it's not something that I'm like following in someone else's footsteps for necessarily. Yeah. yeah. And that, and actually, uh, uh, Stephanie, you've been getting similar kinds of feedback, especially from yeah. early career people, right? Yeah, I have gotten a lot of very positive feedback from early career people who say things like, I'm so excited to have one term to use instead of saying, so I'm trained in geoarchaeology, but I also do a little zooarchaeology and I've started dabbling in climate science because I need to understand this you know, 500 year period that's a transitional period between this and this, and we see the eco ecology change, right? Archaeologists, we combine so many different fields together. We're geophysicists, and we're psychologists of people in the past, and we're art historians, and we're, you know, botanists, and we're, we're ecologists, and we bring all of this together, and it can be really complicated. Because to be able to understand the past, we have to understand the same things that people do today, essentially. And so having, having this term, this umbrella term, but also defining what it is that we're doing, how we're using computational models, how we're bringing all of these tendrils together, I think can be really transformative. And a lot of early career scholars have been very excited about this, which is what I was hoping for. Yeah, I mean, I also think it's just really valuable to get a terminology clarity. Um, an important part of that, I think, is kind of thinking about metadata and kind of from a library perspective, like going mm -hmm. back and re-tagging articles from from the past. Um, because I know an issue that I found in um, my research when I was doing it is that one, sometimes you know an article was was tagged or categorized according to what it was at the time. Um, and it maybe hasn't been been updated um, as new terms develop because you realize that oh that that person was actually doing archaeoecology or you know whatever it is. Yeah. Um, you want to be able to find that that early research, but also just I mean in archaeology, there, there's just so much stuff around in various different museums and historical societies, and it's not digitized. And maybe one person knows about it because. You know, they worked there, or volunteered, interned, whatever it was, and was nosing through it. Um, but there's there is really an untapped wealth of of knowledge um, and data. Um, so anything that encourages people to um, to make it more available and make it digital, so that's more available, is great in my books. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I I do have one one more quick question too. Um, <clears throat> before we get to the next section is you guys have mentioned it a couple of times modeling um, software and uh, the computations involved in uh, some of the ecosystem and food web design, not design, but um, 
yeah, modeling. I don't know what other terms you use. Analyses. Analyses. There we go. Um, what are some key um, things that say an early career archaeologist who's interested in this, um, what types of math or modeling should they look into? Um, because when I was doing mine, I had so many different people feeding me different types of modeling or calculatory systems that I'm like, I'm not a math person. I, I have a hard time defining exactly what it is. So trying to explain it to different people in different fields, I would get different answers. Um, and I just wanted to see what you guys had uh, found out that works really well for this. Mm. So um, I am currently, I didn't introduce everything that I do, but I, I currently am an assistant professor of social environmental modeling at Utah State University. And one of the things that, so I end up teaching understanding sustainability through an archaeological lens. And a lot of what I do is computational modeling. Um, many of my students who come into my classes, both undergrad and graduate, if they're going into a social science background, like an archaeology career, they're a little bit math phobic. And I think that everyone can be very good at math in a way that it's kind of funny because we don't think, oh, I'm good at, you know, drawing or I'm good at this, but I'm, I'm, you know, how exactly am I trying to say this? We don't think that we're innately good at something like math or something like playing croquet or something that's a skill, right? We think we have to learn into it. But for some reason, the way that we teach math in the U.S., people think they're either good at it or they're bad. And nobody is. We just have things we know and things we don't yet know. And so for anyone who is interested in this kind of field and who's interested in archaeology or ecology, but they're now turned off because I said the word big, bad M word modeling, it's not something that you need to be afraid of because it's just a skill you don't know yet. Just like maybe you don't know yet how to make creme brulee, but pretty soon you'll be able to if you put your mind to it. Or, you know, maybe you'll make a passable one, but it'll taste good. And that's kind of how modeling is to me. Um, so for me, learning R was really, really helpful because R is a computer language, a statistical platform, but what it can do is it can help you manipulate data. And so as you are getting other people's data together, you're getting all these digital databases, or you're looking at you know, the field reports that people had from excavating various, you know, house floors or whatever, you'll see that people record things in different ways. And what R can do is it can automate so you're not hand recoding everything. And so you can, you can see if things are misspelled or things like that. And being able to use a statistical platform like that can be really helpful. And then you can start learning various statistics as you need them. Um, and for doing something like food web analysis, you need to understand how networks work. So there are a lot of very good um, books out there. The kind of uh, fundamental book is Networks by Mark Newman. It's very mathy, but it can be very helpful for understanding what things are. There's an archaeologist named Tom Bruchmans who has written a lot about networks. He has a networks blog. And all of these can be helpful for archaeologists who are trying to delve into 
ecological networks. So learn some R so you can manipulate databases and start learning about networks so that you can understand how different species interact. And then there are a lot of other packages that are out there that one can use for um, analyzing data. Um, Jennifer Dunn, Dr. Jennifer Dunn, is part of, uh, of a group that developed a food web specific um, an analysis platform, um, which is very useful um, and helps to really delve into what the different statistics you might get from a network would be. Um, but there's there's a lot of of stuff out there that someone who is interested can learn that is on the internet um, that can give you tutorials. Uh, so it's not it's not as um, scary as it is. But the biggest thing is learning how to work with other people's data and clean data because inevitably there is going to be mistakes in it. And so learning R can be really helpful for that. Thanks, Stephanie. I think that is a really Great point to end on, um, because yeah, there are a lot of kind of archaeology, social science people who are who are math phobic. Um, that is the direction the field is heading in, and it's the direction the world is heading in, and they are important skills both for people as an archaeologist and also just um, more broadly. They they can be really useful. Um, and on that note, um, we're going to sign off for this segment, and when we come back, we'll discuss a little bit more about. Um, how archaeoecology could be applied today and help some of the challenges, um, address some of the challenges that we're facing. See you after the break. Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. So far on today's episode, we've been talking about the emerging field of archaeoecology with Dr. Jennifer Dunn and Dr. Stephanie Crabtree. Um, at the end of the last segment, we talked a little bit about kind of what you need in terms of modeling to get into archaeoecology um, and promised you that we'll talk a little bit about how we can apply this to today. Um, but lest anyone be worried that you absolutely have to have modeling skills to get into archaeoecology, um, Stephanie, can you just talk a little bit about like what some of the other avenues into archaeoecology are, what some of the other skill sets um, someone might take into archaeoecology? Yeah, of course. Um, I think that at the base of all this is that what we're trying to understand is the ecology of past peoples and how past peoples lived in these ecosystems. And so things that can help us understand that. So zooarchaeology, are you good at identifying the past animal remains? Archaeobotany, can you identify the past plants? There's also things like um, ancient DNA, environmental DNA. Um, you called it Zooms. I always said ZOMS, but I'm not like the person who's up on this. <laughs> Theological math spectrometry. Um, I think I've actually potentially only ever seen it written down. So I always just read it as 
Zooms, but that might not be right. Well, me too. But this is the the thing where, you know, when you were a kid and you were reading The Hobbit in second grade and you're reading all these words you don't know. And so you pronounce them incorrectly. Mm-hmm. I think I have that problem. But um, so you can do that. Um, proteomics is another really cool thing where you're looking at the proteins that we can find on past ceramics and other things like that. Um, osteology can be incredibly helpful, understanding how past people lived and how that changed. Um, and the kinds of things that you get in funerary remains and things like that can be really useful. And so there's all kinds of, uh, different avenues that can be pursued as let's say your main specialization in a master's or PhD or volunteering in a lab as an undergraduate. Um, helping to analyze bones or pottery or anything, any of the cultural material that we get from the past. And then it is understanding data and how to um, gather your data in a way so that your future self can thank your past self for how you gathered your data. And so it's organizational skills on top of um, understanding specializations. An important point also, Jennifer Dunn here, is that archaeoecology is collaborative. And it's not that any one person is going to have all the skills and abilities and data necessary to do a comprehensive archaeoecological study. Uh, It's going to involve people coming together and bringing their different kinds of expertise together. And this is how it's worked for me, uh, where... I'm an ecologist, an ecological network expert who's worked with archaeologists and anthropologists and marine biologists and environmental scientists, you know, so where everybody brings a little piece of the puzzle to the table, but is committed to kind of uh, a common interest in the broader kind of human ecological environmental context. Yeah, so, so don't be worried and feel like you have to be an expert in everything. Absolutely. You're not going to be. So Never. Never. Don't, don't even try. <laughs> and, you know, and if, you know, if R doesn't come easily to you, you know, that's okay. Learn enough to like play with it, but then collaborate with someone who's, you know, an expert in statistical analyses or, or R or, you know, some other kind of like dynamical mathematical modeling. You don't, you know, it's find the pieces that turn you on and then get together with the other people who have interests in the same system, but different kinds of expertise. I think that's something that's hard. I think for some archaeologists to remember is we're not in this to do this ourselves or alone. Um, I know there's still a lot of archaeologists out there that try <laughs> or like, you know, there's, there's papers that are published, I think, more commonly in archaeology with a small handful of authors, whereas in other fields or a lot of these, you know, collaborative projects, you have 10 plus um, collaborative folks from different fields that contribute their expertise. And it's important for us to get out of our heads and into um, these collaborative spaces more efficiently than we have in the past. And I'm excited that this is one of those things that will help encourage that. I think I'm hoping. I agree. Yeah. Um, That's a very good point. It is um, very well made. 
So I think we're um, essentially gonna gonna move on from that. Basically, come join people doing archaeology. Meet new friends and colleagues. Bring your expertise. Um, but there is also um, you know we've talked a lot about the past. I think that there is some scope for this to have a really big impact on ecological issues that we are are facing today. There's a question of you know. Are we in the next great extinction? Um, climate change is having a massive impact on the world and all of the species that live in it. Um, you know, and I think that there's some some great scope for looking at how we understand the, the past and how humans interacted with the environment they were in and how the environment impacted them can can help us find solutions to some of the problems that we're facing now. And I'm, I'm hoping that um, Stephanie or Jennifer, either one of you can talk a little bit about what role archaeoecology can play in, in that. Well, so I honestly think that archaeology can save the world because the challenges that we are facing today, pandemics, diasporas, climate change, similar things were faced in the past. There were pandemics. There were mass human movements. There was, was local anthropogenic change. The scale of the questions can be a little different, but the scope basically remains the same. And so in this way, we can look at the archaeological record as past experiments with sustainability. And whereas today, it would be completely unethical to say something like, well, what would happen if we salted the fields here? We can look in the archaeological record to, for example, what happened in Carthage. And we can look to the archaeological record to say, what happened when these organisms went extinct? What happened when people migrated into this region? What happened when they migrated away? And so in this way, archaeoecology can give us vast examples of the human place in ecosystems, which can give us examples for things that are going on in our world today. We can look at how people responded when there were droughts for years on end, and we can potentially use that to anticipate what may happen today and into the future. We know that the drought that is currently affecting the four corners of the uh, American Southwest is fairly similar to what happened um, in the late 1200s before the ancestral Pueblo people migrated away. So what does this tell us about how people are using water, how people are interacting with their ecosystems, and what kind of challenges may be impacting people today and into the future? How can we learn from our ancestors to have a better and more just future? We also, of course, know that every ecosystem today is the product of human interaction because people are everywhere. We are even down in Antarctica. And so there is no ecosystem that is not impacted by people. And so by being able to look at what happened before, we can look at what, um, what happened over time to lead to where things are now. And if we can use the past as a calibration data set, that can help us to essentially predict the future. I really like that perspective because it, it gives some, I think it can replenish some people's hope. Um, I, I know that some people, 
I read an article a while ago that talked about people either have a hopeful or a very doomsday view towards climate change, which was one of the challenges that was keeping people from really moving forward on action. Um, and mm-hmm. this was prior to the pandemic. And, you know, the, you either deny it or you feel like you can do something um, because it's an uncomfortable truth that, you know, things need to change and so forth. But looking at it instead of being like, well, you know, we have to give up, you know, everything, we have to turn everything upside down on its head. And, you know, it basically, I think a lot of people think of it as we have to remove ourselves from the situation so that the mm-hmm. system can level out itself is that we've always been in many ways a part of most, um, if not, you know, all, we are currently in all ecosystems, but we've been part of most ecosystems for so long that like you're saying, just looking at it as an adjustment or a recalibration. um, And then obviously there's a lot of drastic recalibration that needs to be done, but it's not, removing ourselves from the situation, I think is a lot of people kind of still see it. And that's something that you guys touched on earlier um, as far as seeing humans or seeing ourselves as part of this ecosystem. And that's kind of the whole you know, point of all of this. Well, and I think that Jennifer and I would both argue that just removing people from the ecosystem isn't necessarily going to be the best decision. Because as we see in a lot of our work, you remove people and there are other cascading effects. We see it in the the work that I, I did in the Western Desert of Australia. You remove people and you have cascading extinctions because fire was critical for the survival of many of these little organisms, human-induced fire, one to five hectares at max. You remove people and you get wildfires coming through that are catastrophic. And so people have effects. We have negative effects and we have positive effects. And that's, I think, what archaeoecology is all about, understanding those impacts. Well, that's that's really important um, to, to kind of both of your your points, um, understanding that all human impact is not negative, um, and that we do have the ability to, to make a difference, um, and to make, make some adjustments for it. Um, not saying it's going to be easy necessarily, but it is doable. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the kind of malaise and doom and gloom stops people from acting. You're right on that, um, Kirsten. So, I mean, you've talked a little bit about this um, study you did in Australia. Are there any other, like, really good studies that you would say are archaeoecology? I mean, Stephanie, Jennifer, I know both of you have mentioned that you you kind of apply this framework to your work uh, more broadly. Yeah, Jennifer, um, do you want to talk about the SNAC project really quickly? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned it before a bit, but uh, in that project, we were able... Uh, through a lot of <laughs> laborious effort, and that's the royal way, uh, didn't include me, uh, pull together the data to 
compile comprehensive, detailed marine food webs, and that explicitly included humans in them. And one of the things we learned by looking, analyzing that food web and human roles in it was that humans compared to other species in the marine food web are eating many, many more types of things. They're super generalists. And, uh, and they also are super omnivorous. They're eating things at all trophic levels. So everything, you know, from, from uh, primary producers, from autotrophs to a lot of different marine invertebrates to many fishes and marine mammals. And because of those roles, those within the food web, they were poised to have, you know, significant impacts and potentially significant negative impacts because they're so closely connected to all the other species within the complex network. And in addition to that, they also um, had hunting technology. They used different kinds of technologies, uh, you know, to go fishing and to hunt marine mammals. And that's different from other predators in the system. But we did a little modeling in order to try to understand because there's no evidence that there were uh, local extinctions, you know, of any time length, basically, in that system. Mm -hmm. And after humans came in six or seven thousand years ago. And so we did a little modeling to try to understand some of the conditions under which humans could be poised to have really strong impacts, but yet seem to just kind of fit into the ecosystem. And for example, one thing is that human, although they're generalist predators, they prey switch like other ecological generalists do. So, you know, they may have preferred food items. They certainly do. You know, they would, they love to go out and, uh, you know, get sea lions when they could stellar sea lions, but most of the time they couldn't. And there was a lot of technology involved in trying to hunt stellar sea lions. And so a lot of the time, and also the weather was often bad. So a lot of the time they just go to the intertidal and then they, you know, focus on the big juicy creatures first in the intertidal and, and collect them. But after a while, those populations, those local populations would get, they deplete them a bit. And so, and it got, it wasn't worth for them to go searching for another little subpopulation of the big juicy thing. So they move down and get something in a smaller body size. And so they kind of move from species to species. Um, and this prey switching is something that's very stabilizing for ecological dynamics. Um, and so the fact that humans were also prey switching like the other generalist predators uh, tend to do. Um, is actually a very stabilizing dynamic for the whole ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, also, I mean, humans being generalists, we, we do eat a lot of a lot of different things. Um, it's not just humans who have preferences, right? Like other, yes. other animals also have preferences and, um, you know, both as species, but also as individuals within the species. Um, of what they like maybe we're we're not so different no we're not and I think when you know we tend to have a more stabilizing impact or less negative impacts is when we are acting more like ecological predators Mm -hmm. rather than say you know like the high-end kind of luxury sushi market for example where bluefin tuna are highly prized and so uh, you know, so there's a lot of incentive um, as tuna, as the tuna become more rare, they become more valuable. And that's actually kind of the opposite of the dynamic I was talking about, this prey switching. 
there's actually an economic incentive to not pray switch, uh, but to, you know, go after, you know, the increasingly rare um, populations or individuals of bluefin tuna. And so that's a non-ecological dynamic that can be destabilizing. It's obviously not good for the bluefin tuna, but it's not good for the ecosystem either that the tuna are embedded in. So that's just kind of a little, you know, sort of anecdote uh, comparing, you know, sort of an ecological role that humans can play versus one that's very economically driven. Yeah, yeah. And certainly a lot of things today are very economically driven. Um, And I'm just thinking of like also about knowing alternatives because like there was a plant in the um, the Roman age that essentially acted as um, growth control or plan B um, and humans, it, it didn't grow in agriculture or farmed. It, has, it had to be foraged wide um, in the wild um, and humans foraged it to extinction because they didn't have another good way to not have babies. Um, that was that was as effective but given everything that we we know today and all the different options that are available to us you think that we would be able to to figure out how to praise switch not just for food but for other things as well mm-hmm. to not deplete um, deplete the system but we are approaching the end of our our third segment this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation really enjoyed it thank you so much for coming on um just any kind of final thoughts that you want to get in There's so much that we can learn from the past. And while archaeology can be fascinating in and of itself, doing an excavation and holding, you know, a piece of pottery in your hands is amazing. There's so much we can learn from our ancestors. And I think that this is what this work shows us, is that we are at the point where we can start compiling these lessons and we can hopefully change a lot of the way that we're doing things today by understanding this human place and what we as people bring together. That's great. Jennifer, do you have anything you'd like to add? No, I love what Stephanie just said and fully agree. (laughs) Perfect. Well, again, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. The conversation has been great. Um, the show wouldn't exist without guests who come on and, and share their knowledge and expertise with us. So really, thank you. Um, and our show also wouldn't exist without our listeners. So thank you for joining us today. Um, as always, we love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Women Archies. You can also email us at uh, womeninarchaeology at gmail.com. Check out some of our other episodes on your podcast platform of choice. Visit www.womeninarchaeology.com to read some of the blogs um, and look at some of the other work that we are doing. And if you like what you've heard today, um, you can also find us on uh, Patreon at Women in Archaeology and help us continue to do this work. So thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. And um, we'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye.